welcome to STEMiverse podcast episode 42. In this episode, Peter talks with Ruth Farmer. Ruth Farmer is Chief Evangelist of CS4ALL, Computer Science for All, a national organization in the United States working to bring rigorous, inclusive and sustainable computer science education to all U.S. students. Ruth previously served in the Obama administration as Senior Policy Advisor for Tech Inclusion in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. As a policymaker and activist, Ruth's focus is on increasing girls' participation in technology and engineering. Here's some of the amazing work she's done and some of the awards she's received in the past. Ruth has worked for the Girl Scouts as a program manager for STEM education and was a founding committee member of the Oregon Robotics and Tournament Outreach Program. Ruth was named a Champion of Change for Technology Inclusion by the White House in 2013 and won the Anita Borg Institute's 2014 Social Impact AB Award. This is Stemiverse Podcast Episode 42. Stemiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change and why not abundance. This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students, and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash stemiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. So Ruth, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Stemiverse podcast. How are you today? I am great. Great. And uh, you are based in the US in Colorado, is that right? Yes, I'm in Colorado, uh, just down the road from Boulder, um, the University of Colorado at Boulder, where I had previously worked at the National Center for Women and Information Technology. Great. So how how are things in Colorado today? Uh, it's beautiful. I think you're Sunny in winter. And Sunny and warm. Right. We are moving into autumn here, so uh, temperature is dropping a bit, but this is actually the, the season that I like the most. It's like just the right temperature and uh, it's all good. <laughs> I think you're in. Uh, you're getting in spring now, aren't you? Yeah, we're getting to spring. Everything's starting to bloom, but we'll probably get some more snow. So everybody gets all excited yeah. and starts planting things and running around, and then <laughs> we get a big snow and it kills everything. So to, <laughs> oh no, to hold off get until again. May. Yep, just wait until uh, you know that you've got uh, like a good runway for everything to grow, and uh, then get into summer. Yep, that's great. Um, so uh, I'd like to ask you to take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe a bit about your background, and take, well, you can go as far back as you like in life, um, maybe when you were a baby. <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking this too far. Uh, I'd like to know what brought you 
to where you are now. So then we can talk about the amazing things that you're working on at the moment. Sure. So um, my background is a little different than most people you might find in this space. I actually um, I grew up in Oregon mostly, but a number of Western states and moved many, many times with my family, which I think has contributed a lot to my ability to sort of code shift and be in lots of different places and interact with lots Mm. of different people. But in college, I really wanted to do one of two things. I wanted to do either advertising or architecture. And I had had an extremely disjointed math education because we'd moved so many times that I was always starting in different places and different schools and didn't really have the linear progression of math. And I didn't feel... Like I was, frankly, I was scared of the math that was going to be required for an um, architecture program. So I decided to go into the advertising field because I wanted to do something creative. So I studied communications in college and actually I've done these very radio things back when we did it with actual, you know, tape. And... That was really where I, you know, kind of got hooked into feminism and being an advocate for women and girls because I ended up taking a class Hmm. in the rhetoric of women and learned about a whole lot of women that I had never heard of. And I was like, how is it possible that I'm a sophomore in college and I've never heard of these women? They weren't part of my history lessons. So I got really excited about feminism. Could give us some examples of the women that uh, I came to mind because Ida Wells, who was a journalist mm-hmm. and an advocate, I really didn't really know why Susan B. Anthony was on a coin. You know, like we hadn't really dug into any of those <laughs> women. Right. Women were often. I remember I called my sister and I was like, "Go to our social studies teacher back in our high school, ask him why you never learned about these women." I gave her a list, and he said, "Well, we could do a, a unit on presidents' wives." And, you know, the the contributions of women had kind of been left out of history. And um, at one point in my career, I was asked by someone, and I think this is an amazing interview question. They asked, if you could write a grant for any amount of money, knowing that it would be funded, what would you do for the world? And at the time, my answer was, I would fund and staff a complete parallel women's history curriculum for all the schools. Mm-hmm. Now, today, I would make all middle schools single sex. Really? Wow. Because I think that would make a huge difference for um, girls' achievement. Right. So I you know, went to college, I got into uh, communications, and I kind of made a run at a career in advertising. But it was a really bad economic downturn in the mid-90s. And when I came out of college, finding a job was really hard. So there was a lot of years of struggling. And then um, I ended up in this machinery company that made like downline machinery automation systems for plastics manufacturing. And that's where I kind of was like, I probably should have been an engineer because I could see what the engineers could see. Like I could look at a machine and go, well, if we did these things differently, it could be modular, it could be different. And I learned to speak engineer. And um, when I left that job, I spent a little bit of time consulting with nonprofits. I'd always done pro bono work for nonprofits on marketing and um, fundraising. And then I did that for a while. And then I took a job at the Girl Scouts doing program management. And I had a lot of programs that were under my 
you know, supervision, wildlife badge day, for example. And right around that time, Intel funded the Girl Scouts nationally for a big program to increase the pipeline of girls going into the science fair in engineering, math, and computer science. Uh-huh. And So what year are we looking at now? 2001. So my Girl Scout Council boss said, we got this grant from the national headquarters to do this program with Intel, and we're going to hire a contractor to do it. And I was like, nope, I will automate all my other job, <laughs> and I will do this thing. <laughs> and... Um, built that program, which is known as um, Design and Discovery. It's an invention and design process curriculum that we were doing design process and design thinking with girls, 12-year-old girls back in 2001. And um, one of the most impactful curricula I've ever seen. And eventually I made my way to the the mothership, the Girl Scout headquarters in New York City. Mm-hmm. And um, that program, Design and Discovery, ended up being scaled out nationally to 60 different Girl Scout councils and international locations as well, and including the Irish public schools. And then um, launched a whole bunch of other programs at Girl Scouts. And that's where I really started to think about this idea of scale, And how do we ethically scale engineering and computer science to kids? And if you look at something like the Girl Scouts or what you call the Girl Guides in Australia, it's this big infrastructure and it's part of the fabric of life for a girl. And so I was like, how do we use this infrastructure to get this content to kids at scale? So then I went and pursued an MBA to explore that idea further and sort of the rest is history. <laughs> wow, what a journey. Um, I know that what you do now uh, has to do with promoting computer science for all kids. Uh, it's a, a, an organization that you're working in that we are going to talk a bit later about. But looking at your background, you don't have any computer science training, any teaching sci- uh, training as a teacher. You haven't actually taught in a capacity or in any capacity, but still all that experience that you gathered over the years, the decades, uh, seems to have ended up to be an advocate for computer science education. How do you feel about that? Did you expect that, first of all? Did you aim for that? (laughs) No, I never expected or aimed for that, but I kind of consider myself to be a CS cheerleader, right? So oftentimes the people who are great education researchers or um, great at pedagogy are not great at sales and marketing. So I kind of see myself as like the marketing arm, right? (laughs) And I am here to help identify the things that are great and um, get visibility for those people and get those things um, scaled up to more people. And so... While I actually have written a couple of lines of code because one of my students taught me (laughs) and I have um, made a a fun program in Alice many years ago, my superpower, I think, lies in in lifting up other people and Mm. talking about and sharing the potential that others hold to be bigger or better or move faster. Yeah, I think perhaps you're early experience and training in advertising must have contributed a lot towards being that advocate, right? Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of power to telling stories Hmm. about Hmm. teachers and students and successes that can help others see possibility. 
So I do a lot of that on Twitter and I do a lot of that with Medium and try to lift up the stories of people who are doing interesting things and thinking about interesting things and trying new things. Uh, Was your experience working for that engineering plastics company, right? Um, Was that experience the trigger for you becoming interested in computers, in computing science? um, And perhaps before that point, you had not thought of it. Uh, Is that how it worked for you? No, I mean, if you think about what was going on in the early 90s at the beginning of the, you know, the broad use of the internet, I learned HTML. I went and took a class in HTML to figure out how to make a website for that company, actually. And one thing that I recall that was really funny is a friend of mine had launched a a small consultancy that was doing CD-ROM tools. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, back when you had to have a CD-ROM because nobody had enough computing yep. power to hold a program. <laughs> so the machines that we sold were these modu- were these modular machines that would cut, twist, pack, and palletize, and so on. The kind of things that you'd see if you went into a manufacturing facility. And a colleague of mine had this company that they launched that had built a CD-ROM-based sales tool for somebody where you could actually, in 3D, build the machine on screen. Now, this was for a different company that made box cutting systems. So I took my my boss down to see this thing and say, look, this is something we could get done. We could make one of these and then we could have our sales engineers be able to, you know, carry this little CD-ROM and not piles and piles of drawings and demonstrate the product in real time. And she was like, well, can't you just build that? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, if I had two years of computer science, I could build that. I can't build that based on my, my half a day HTML class. So it was interesting because it was a time in history when people were either very ignorant of what was possible with technology yeah. and had really unrealistic expectations. Yes. But it was also a time when pretty much anybody. I mean, I have so many friends who had degrees in history and English who taught themselves Perl in the 90s and became Hmm. developers. I was also in Portland, Oregon. I mean, Portland, Oregon is Intel's largest facility. So I was tech adjacent, you know, everyone I was friends with and knew. And one of the things that I did in um, the Girl Scout Council, so I get to this Girl Scout Council in 2001, and we had one computer between seven people. <laughs> I and, remember those days, yeah. Uh, and during labs are like that. <laughs> yeah. At home, I had a, a graphic design station. And so I was like, I can't work this way. This is ridiculous. And we had one computer that we could get on. And I was like, I don't understand how we're any of us. We weren't using email really at all. And the council had been like, well, we're not going to do things you know, on email on the web because not every parent and not every girl has email. I'm like, yes. well, that's like saying I'm not going to have a business card because not everyone can mm-hmm. read. You know, it's just crazy. <laughs> so meanwhile, like Girl Scout volunteers were building online groups and they were building Yahoo groups and they were building um, web pages for their troops and stuff and the council had nothing. So right around that time, Intel released the Pentium chip. And I, having dated and known many engineers from Intel, I was like, okay, you guys are all going to build yourselves a computer on this Pentium chip because Intel gave every employee a free Pentium chip. So (laughs) I said, okay, donate your computers to the Girl Scouts. And so I got my engineer friends to donate their old computers, which they all had the top of the line at the time, which was a 486, to the Girl Scout Council on the condition that the best one was on my desk. And then... um, (laughs) 
you know, that kind of pushed us. And then eventually we start, you know, buying computers and stocking up and staffing up. But it was like the dark ages. <laughs> I was like... Yeah, so this, this was the 90s, right? Or mid-90s? It was like, um, this was actually 2001 that the Girl Scout Council didn't wow. have the computers that everyone else had. And yeah. so um, we kind of pushed them in that direction. And then I ended up, you know, doing this big project with Intel, but we certainly didn't have any of the the tools that we have today. And when I think about it, one of the things I really wish I could do, given all the amazing new things we have now with Raspberry Pi and Arduinos and Microbit, I would love to go back and revise that design and discovery curriculum with modern engineering tools because the crux Mm -hmm. of that curriculum was we would introduce girls to the designed world. We would say, look all around you. There are design solutions. Everything around you has been touched by an engineer at some point. And then we would challenge them to identify something in their life that bugged them, that bothered them, and then they would solve it with engineering. And now the tools that exist are so accessible, whether it's building apps or it's using Arduino to automate things. I would love to, you know, go back and reboot that. Go back in time. Yeah. Well, we can build forwards. Yes. (laughs) Actually, speaking of forwards, uh, I want to actually fast forward to 2016 because the way that I found you was through, uh, by actually Googling a few things and eventually reaching your TEDx Beacon Street talk, which I believe uh, you delivered in late 2016, maybe uh, November or December. Mm-hmm. So a very interesting talk, which I'm going to link to uh, in our notes as well. But in that talk, you talked about uh, you know computers becoming ubiquitous these days. Uh, we've got one in our pocket, so they're everywhere pretty much. And at the same time, computer science has been lost. So there's a graph that I think, again, I found by doing research on you, a graph showing how graduates of computer science in various universities around the US, but Australia is the same in that regards, are dropping at the same time where computers are everywhere. And uh, that was one of the topics that you touched in the TED Talk. So I'd like to ask you about the TED Talk. Um, how did it come about uh, What and what triggered really uh, the topics that you addressed in the talk? And I'd like to also know what happened after the talk. <laughs> so um, frankly, I think the reason I was invited to do that TED Talk was because I was working at the White House. And so mm-hmm. I, yes. I, I pinged um, John Werner, who leads TEDx Beacon Street, which one is one of the biggest and most successful TEDx out there. Um, and I said, hey, I'd love to talk about computer science for all. And he said, sure, mm. um, and put me in the schedule. And um, another friend of mine was going to be speaking there on um, his program, Bootstrap, which is a integration of computer science into algebra. So... I really was looking for like, what was the right message I could give, you know, about why this was so important. And, you know, I live in a universe where everybody thinks and talks about um, tech inclusion and computer science education all the time. But when you're looking at people like outside who just aren't familiar, you know, I fly a lot and I frequently will be talking to whoever's next to me about, you know, what I've, what I'm working on. And they're usually really floored to find out that computer science is not in our schools and that this is even a problem. And oftentimes they're like, well, but my, my, you know, kids are on their phones all the time or they, you know, there's this perception that because we have computers that we actually have computing. 
education, which we don't, um, and certainly not in an equitable distribution. So that's a bit, um, this is uh, unexpected in my opinion, as we remember the 90s, for example, or even the 80s where computers were rare, really. You had one computer among 10 people, but computer science was much stronger back then. I remember the interest was there and that got reversed as computers became more and more Prevalent. Well, and what I talked about in the in the talk was this issue that when we gave, when we brought computers to the schools, you couldn't do anything but program them. There wasn't any mm. software. <laughs> like almost all mm. software was for enterprise. Nothing interesting for the children to do, right? Right. And so the the thing that you could do with a computer early on was write little programs. And, you know, program things to work. Plus, you know, before Windows and before, you know, that the, the Mac type of interface, it was pretty like you had to like dig in and know some stuff to get the computer to listen to you, to talk to it, right? You had to know the command lines and those things. So it was a bit of work involved. Right. It wasn't easy right. to get started. So now it's so like you know, it's visually engaging and, you know, you see two and three-year-olds, you know, my, my friend's daughter and in New York city, they have these bus stops that have this like sort of advertisements that are on a roll. And so they rotate on mm. like a screen mm. and her little daughter will walk up and try to swipe the bus stop. Like <laughs> <laughs> they, they're doing, it's a yeah, touch it's a touch, everything's a touch screen. And so there's a, a perception that everyone's, must be learning this. Also, there was a massive amount of investment in ed tech, right? Using technology to teach, using technology for education. Um, if we just get everyone one of these smart boards, they're going to learn so much. But not actually having teachers who are trained as professionals in teaching computer science education, that got lost. And a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's not in the standards and it's not in, and the United States is, is really unique as a educational system in that we don't have any person, even the president or the secretary of education cannot say you must teach X. It's just yes, not done that right. way. We have local control. So it's really up to individual schools in some cases or individual districts, what is taught and what counts. And, um, we kind of left tech and engineering out. Yeah, so I suppose um, you did identify a problem there, which when you mention it, it is quite obvious when I look at my history back in time from the 80s when I started working with computers and then going through school, school system, university, etc. I, I did feel that computer science was becoming less and less important in my life and in my environment. And I was getting less exposure, even though I was uh, like very interested in all that. I did go into engineering school. So you identify the problem. Has something changed recently that is putting computer science back into the map, if not from the top end, uh, if not from you know, government regulations and outcomes from Department of Education, from the bottom up, uh, do you see anything changing say, over the last 10 years? Yeah, so there's a, there's a really um, rich history that has gone into this and this sort of emergence of computer science and the Computer Science for All initiative that President Obama announced in January of 2016. So in 2005... A group of people got together, I think they were actually at a funeral for someone, 
Um, and they were like, what has gone on? You know, why has nothing changed for women in technology and women in computer science? And they got together and um, right around that time, Jan Cuny, who is the program officer at the National Science Foundation working on broadening participation in computing, she um, she was moving over to the NSF from University of Oregon. And at the same time, this organization, the National Center for Women in IT, formed. And a whole bunch of efforts started to go into researching why and figuring out what was going to work for women in computer science. At the time, I was at the Girl Scouts, and I became the K-12 hub for informal education research for girls in computing. And there was a massive drop you know, after the dot-com boom and then bust, after the bust, there was a drop in enrollment in um, computer science. So computer science departments at universities were kind of like, oh no, we don't have any students. At the time, you're like, okay, 50% of all college students are female. Was that across the board, boys and yes. girls, or men and women enrolling in computer science courses? Enrollment overall was down, boys, so. and in, in many cases, computer science departments mm-hmm. at universities were having to like merge with math departments and and shrink. And so, a sense of alarm, you know, went off, and they started looking at ways that they could fix this. And one was to go after, you know, the seventy five percent of people who weren't taking computer science, which would be women and minorities. And so lots of efforts and lots of federal funding went into, over the course of a decade, developing new courses. There's a new AP computer science course that the College Board now has, developing curricula, and also building the research base of people to understand what's going on. And one of the things that was the big aha moment for women in computer science was the fact that if there's not computer science in K-12 schools, we're never going to fix the problem for girls and women. Because prior experience before you get to college was critical to being successful in college. Yes, absolutely. That's what a lot of our other guests uh, prior have also pointed out, yes. So that's kind of where the genesis of the CS for All movement actually started, was in this like incubating and figuring out the problem for girls. And so in 2006, when President Obama was actually still a senator, That was the first time he came and spoke about computer science was at a National Center for Women in IT roundtable that was held in D.C. And there's a video in which he says, you know, I'm here because of Jan Cuny, because her husband was on his staff. And so the early incubation of, you know, getting computer science into um, into this conversation about STEM and just thinking about the fact that everyone talks about STEM and I was around when we were like coming up with the STEM acronym, right? And there was lots of conversation of should it be TEMS or METS or ETEM because people were nervous about STEM because of stem cell research and confusing people around that. Yeah, it makes it harder to Google things around STEM because of that. And so in the rise of everyone talking about STEM, they forgot about really computer science and tech and engineering because Mm. people, you know, most people, their STEM education has been science. They had science, they had chemistry, they had biology, they had, you know, physics. Which are core subjects in most schools around the world. So then we get people going, STEM, 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 we need STEM. Well, if you actually unpack the acronym of STEM, we have plenty of people in biology. Every single student in the nation takes biology. 
So if you unpack it and actually look where the missing pieces are, what's missing is computer science. And so I often say, it's not that computer science is more important than the other STEM disciplines. It's that it is missing. Yep. So I think that's when uh, you started working with the Obama administration, right? As a senior policy advisor for tech inclusion. Is that about the same time after that discussion at the <laughs> funeral oh, took place? Um, no, that was 10 years later. So, um, okay. you know, the, but we did work with the Obama administration from the time, you know, that they came into office. There were conversations going on between NCWIT, you know, the National Center for Women in IT and the Obama administration. And that oh, the Obama White House and the Office of Science and Technology Policy was extremely robust and very concerned about STEM education from day one. My first time really engaging with with the White House was when they had the Champions of Change for Women and Girls in STEM. And we nominated a whole bunch of people. And there were three people that NCWIT had nominated that were recognized among the 12 Champions of Change that year. And I got invited to attend the event. And I was like, oh my gosh, invitation from the White House. This is amazing. And I responded with, how many girls can I bring? And they said, no, 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 this invitation was just for you. And I said, well, it's Champions (laughs) of Change, women and girls. Of course you want me to bring girls. And so they said, okay, you can have four girls. And so I reached out into my network of girls that lived within driving distance of DC because I had like a week's notice. And I said, okay, send me your, your picture, your bio, and your contact information. And I sent them a document with eight girls. And I said, you choose. You tell me which four. <laughs> they, of course, said okay to all eight Brilliant. of them. Bring them all. And then um, they were all coming from different universities. And I'd actually reached out to Georgia Tech. And I said, can you send a couple of girls up from Georgia? And they've got you know an endowment. So they're like, sure, we'll fly them up. And so then I reached out to all the universities and I wrote to all the girls and then I copied all their universities and I said, thank you, Georgia Tech, for sponsoring your students' travel. So immediately all the other universities are like, of course, we're sponsoring our students' So, <laughs> So it's your advertiser talking, right? Yeah. So I end up bringing this big cohort of girls, young women, like of, you know, all different backgrounds to the White House. And that was great for me, but it was amazing for them. Like those girls got yeah, so much publicity in their universities. They got better internship offers. They were visible. But then I sort of became, you know, this person. I now had this relationship with the White House and they knew that I could deliver, that I could bring kids or that I could find people and that I was connected to the community. So I worked with them, you know, on a number of things over the course of several years. And then in... Um, 2015, when they they were really thinking very seriously about a big push around computer science, they asked me to come join. Mm-hmm. So then you became the senior policy advisor in 2015. 2016 in January. And well, 16. It takes right. a long time to get through this the security clearance and everything. So a process, the invitation yeah. happened in like 2015 in December, but then by the time I got there, it was you know well into the spring. <laughs> So you can tell us about the, the time that you spent in the White House. And uh, I want to know like what actually got done and what the legacy of that is, uh, if, if something still remains. Because I like there has been quite a bit of time between now and then. Can you tell us a little bit about 
what your experience was in the White House. Sure. So it was amazing. And, you know, I I did an interview the other day and they said, what do you wish, you know, about your time in government? I'm like, I wish I'd been there longer. Um, I wish yeah. I'd been there sooner. And it was a very high performing group of people. Um, and we were working really hard to, as we called it, run through the tape, you know, that we had a short amount of time left and we yeah. were counting days and um, really get as many things done as possible. And I think the I think that computer science for all made a lot of sense for the Obama administration as as a final um, STEM initiative because it had so much momentum in the community already. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not going to launch something from ground zero in the, the last year, right? So this, the computer science education movement was well on its way. Jobs had all recovered. There was tons of demand for employees and hiring. And so lots and lots of interest on the part of the um, tech sector in, in building up the pipeline. So we'd seen sort of a resurgence of excitement around this and a broadening of who cared about it. So um, one of the things we did in, in the Obama White House was um, something called Scout and Scale. So using a commitments model, much like the Clinton Global Initiative, where people make a public commitment, it's not just about coming and talking about a problem, but it's about like committing to an action. So when I joined the administration, with the original announcement for CS for All, which was in January, there were about 50 organizations at the table. I rounded out the end of the year, we had 548 different commitment makers. So my objective had been to really broaden the footprint of who felt like they belonged and who was a member of the CS for All movement. And we've really continued that outside um, the White House. My colleagues, Dr. Leanne Delizer and Dr. Michael Preston, who at the time were CSNYC, they um, launched the CS for All Consortium to create a home for the movement beyond the administration because we knew there was an election coming regardless of who was going to win it. We still needed a, a place for the mission outside. And so CS for All, what the organization that I now work for is that thing. We are sort of the place that you join the CS for all movement, you know, it's like, when do social movements have an office? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so organizations need to be able to join. They need to be able to connect with others. So if you're a school district, you need to be able to connect with curriculum providers. If you're a researcher, you need to find research subjects and partners. If you're providing some sort of, you know, content or device, you need to connect with the people, whether in or out of school that might be using that. But also there needs to be sort of a sense of collective ownership and collective impact for the work. And I I think a lot about like, how is this going to get done? Well, we have the most distributed education system in the world. So this solution is going to have to be distributed and that it's going to be, you know, thousands of individual actors that are engaging directly in communities that get this done, not like one edict or one provider or Mm. one funder. There's no one solution. And I also think that, I mean, computer science education is unique in that chemistry doesn't change that fast. (laughs) You know, algebra doesn't change very fast. Um, You know, physics, changes a little faster than others because we have new discoveries frequently, but like computer science is, is a kind of a moving target, at least the ways in which you demonstrate computer science, right? So the ways that you apply computing. And so I'm really interested in and like the approach of like focusing on 
the concepts of computing, computational thinking and the ways that computers and computation and information is moved and changed. And then the devices and the apps, those things are going to change. But the foundational concepts of, of mm-hmm. computational thinking are what we want to be teaching our kids. Right. So while computer science just changes really quickly, and but its capabilities increase. You know, I was just reading yesterday about new optical computers, for example. These are computers that do calculations using light. And then past that, there's uh, computers that use uh, quantum effects to do calculations. And there's also DNA computers. And so you can see tremendous change in opportunities there. But computational thinking doesn't change. And that is what students uh, who become involved in computer science actually take with them to use not only in a computer science specific career, but pretty much anything, right? What are the the fields where computational thinking can be applied in? It would be easier to say the fields it can't be applied in. Mm, Yep. It is literally in everything now. And I, I feel like, and I wrote about this in my piece I did around, um, you know, CS for all is our modern day space race. And that like, this is about creating the conditions for innovation. And so I've been working a lot with the state of Wyoming, which is just north of me, um, north of Colorado. Wyoming is literally where the deer and the antelope roam. Okay. It is like (laughs) um, the least populous state in the United States. Um, They have the fastest migration out of their state of anyone else. Um, People leave that state when they graduate high school. Their economy is mostly extraction, so mining and minerals and oil and such, Mm -hmm. and farming. And Wyoming, last two weeks ago, their governor signed a comprehensive computer science education bill. And they have launched the Boot Up Wyoming 2020 initiative. And they are like, we are going to train our young people for the future. And we know that that innovation and technology is part of it. So is this about filling a bunch of jobs that exist right now in Wyoming and tech? No, this is about creating an economy for Wyoming that is diverse 20 years from now. Because what you're teaching a kindergartner right now about block-based coding isn't going to be anything like any job they're ever going to have or even a class they're going to take in high school. Those things are all going to change. Yeah. So you're shooting for the future, not knowing what the future is like, but what you do know is that there are going to be computers and you will need people that understand how to program and interact with computers in a computational way, but not necessarily writing programs. Right. right? Well, machines are probably going to be writing a lot of the programs, but, yeah, their own programs. Um, but also like we need to understand that computation is a part of our world mm. and it has serious implications. And so understanding that the device that you use is programmed with a profit motive, understanding that the um, the distance that information can now travel and the speed at which it can travel and the implications of privacy and ethics, all of that requires people knowing what it is. Just like, you know, in the process of becoming a doctor and taking the Hippocratic Oath someday, right, when you become a doctor, all of that has been built upon a foundation of understanding biological systems and ecology and ecosystems and all of the things that then ultimately, and the ethics and all of that ultimately goes into your training to be a doctor. Well, the reaches of someone's work in technology can be vastly larger. And so have we, can far be, more we can be fairly confident that um, 
including computer science in the normal curriculum is going to be a very important investment for the future and for the present in many cases. Well, I think that the engineering design process and computer science should be throughout K-12. Absolutely. Mm. Because, you know, a few years ago, I remember when I think it was Katrina and... The hurricane? Yeah, no, it wasn't Katrina. It was the oil spill in the Gulf. We had that big old oil spill in the Gulf, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Deep Horizon, I think they called it or something like that. Yeah. And President Obama said in an interview, I'm sending my best scientists down there to fix this. And I was like, scientists don't fix things. Engineers (laughs) fix things. Scientists study what happened. Engineers design solutions and solve problems. And whether they're computer science or they're, you know, mechanical or electrical or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've really left out, you know, this, there's this conflation of science and engineering that I find frustrating. And in my efforts to get more girls into the engineering categories in the science fair, one of the things I kept butting up against was I'm like, I can't make girls win the science fair in engineering if all your judges are male scientists. Absolutely. And I'm asking these girls to do engineering projects. And so like, you know, there's their need. So we actually printed out a card that we had at our space that said, this is the engineering design process. I'm not following the, um, the scientific method because I'm doing an engineering mm-hmm. project. It's not the same. And we were like educating the judges in real time because people don't really understand the difference. And I, I, like my marketing hat being on, if I could do anything, like I feel like the engineering and technology disciplines as a whole have done a really poor job of letting the world know how much of an impact they mm-hmm. have. People think if I want to help people, I need to be a doctor. Or right? a lawyer. Or yeah. if I want to help people, I'm going to be a, a lawyer. I'm going to be a human rights lawyer. You can help millions of people with biotechnology. Renewable energy. Or with medical devices or with renewable energy, like all of the things. And literally, you spend 99% of your time in the designed and engineered world, whether you're in a car or a home or sitting on a desk chair or using a lamp or using your device, your computer, you're interacting with something that's been done by an engineer, Mm -hmm. but they just haven't claimed that impact. Yes, advertising is not the the best (laughs) skill. Right. It's it's like an image issue. Like, what is the public image issue of this discipline? And and it's just really missing, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I see really good science communicators like Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example, even Stephen Hawking, we died a couple of weeks ago. Um, he did really good to explain what science does. Uh, but I, I do feel that it's missing in engineering other than perhaps a few superhero movies like Tony Stark, for example, but it's not the message that we want, right? So we can definitely do a better job there. I think it's starting to grow, you know, and I've seen some great things happening with, with things like Black Panther and, Mm -hmm. you know, starting to like weave engineering into, um, into sort of like the public consciousness. Star Trek helps there as well, I feel. Star Trek helps, but one of the things that's, I think, challenging is a lot of what's been out there has been like Mythbusters and like these kind of like engineering lists, what if we blow these things (laughs) up kind of approach. And I find that young women in particular respond much more to like tangible impact Mm -hmm, things. mm -hmm. 
that when I was doing the design and discovery program, the girls would be asked to solve a problem and they would identify as something that they wanted to solve. And we had really incredible projects that these 12 year old girls were coming up with. Mm -hmm. Like there was a girl who lived in Arizona. Her problem that she saw was that kids would um, fall into people's swimming pools or be in the swimming pool and drown. And that was a issue every summer for her. And that really resonated with resonated with her. Every single device that was on the market at the time was simply an alarm system to tell you that someone was in your pool. But she's like, what if you're supposed to be in the pool? What if you're just Mm -hmm. playing in the pool? And having trouble. And so she came up with a device that used heart rate monitor technology to have a, the child has a heart rate monitor on and the mother or the father is sitting on the deck reading a book or whatever. And they've got a device that's paired to that heart rate monitor that if their child's heart rate goes too low or too high, it, it lets them know. And now you could actually do that. You could do that with Bluetooth now. But back in 2002, when this 12-year-old was thinking of this, I mean, I, I see the things that have been developed since. A couple of my kids had come up with, they wanted to build wireless remote control Christmas tree lights. Because they were like, Christmas tree lights always get tangled and you just end up throwing them away. And they wanted... This is true. Right. They wanted to clip them onto a tree. And they did all this research and they're like, they get too hot. The batteries are too heavy. The batteries don't last long enough. Well, now with the invention of the white LEDs, the super, super lightweight LEDs, Mm -hmm. that's actually, Mm -hmm. you can buy them now. They're on the market. Solar powered, clip on individual Christmas tree lights. But back in 2000. Two, two 12-year-old girls tried to solve that problem. And they came up with actually a list of all of the technologies that they thought needed to be invented for their project to be a reality. Mm. So they were able to create the system and identify the components of the system mm-hmm. and figure out which ones are good enough right now, which ones we have to wait for improvements and so on. So they went through the engineering uh, way of thinking about solving a problem. Exactly. and Without having training... Helpful. That they that they solved it. What's important is that they went hmm. through the process. Hmm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, Ruth, just to change slightly, and I want to move towards teachers now and mentors. I was browsing the com- uh, computer science yes, for all website, and I found a story written by Lizzie, who's a computer science student, and she wrote about the importance of mentors and also talked about what makes a good mentor. So I wanted to ask you, a mentor's part of this grassroots effort to put computer science on the education spotlight. What would you advise a, a teacher who is considering to teach or to uh, bring computer science in the classroom, but that don't necessarily have uh, the technical background, perhaps, or even support from uh, higher ups in the organization? Well, that's Fortunately or unfortunately, that's most of our teachers right now. So mm-hmm. most of the people who are becoming computer science teachers right now are teachers from other disciplines that are that are stepping up quite bravely to learn how to teach this. Um, some of them, you know, are coming from the sciences, but many of them are also coming from the liberal arts, which is, you know, and English teachers and librarians and others. So there's quite a number of really good professional development programs out there to prepare teachers to teach a computer science course. But it would be like being certified as a math teacher, but you're only certified to teach Algebra 1. 
right? So it's not like you're yeah. a full-fledged computer science teacher yet because, you know, the way that we we have math or science teachers is you are trained in the discipline, you get the teaching degree, and then you teach, you know, the full suite of that discipline. So we're kind of doing a sort of a patchwork effort to upskill a bunch of existing teachers. And then there's work going on to start to prime the the pump of the pre-service teacher education programs in schools of education at universities, which is really so a, 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 a big training game. component there. Yeah. But what I would advise I would give to teachers if they want to learn how to teach computer science is go get the PD, go get the professional development and connect with um, that resource, but then join a community practice. So there are Twitter chats. There's like the CSK8 Twitter chat. There's um, CS for All Teachers has Twitter chats all the time. So there's sort of a lively conversation between teachers on Twitter. There's things like the Computer Science Teachers Association where you can join and actually be meeting people in person because there's people out there that exist in your community. And, you know, I realize that we have have created almost we've recreated the same problem that that girls have in computer science is that they're isolated now we're recreating that with teachers we're creating isolated teachers so connecting teachers up to um to other teachers is important i think it's also valuable for teachers to have a relationship with a tech person right so um i want teachers to have tech friends because it's really useful to be able to go to somebody and be like, okay, I'm explaining this concept. How would you use this at work? Give me an example from work. So I think those types of relationships between for people in the workforce to volunteer, I think the best thing they can do is mm-hmm. take a teacher out for coffee. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. So Bring a guest to the classroom. Yeah. But that's a, you know, like lots of, of companies are like, we're going to send all our employees to go teach. Mm, that's like, first step is become friends with the teacher yep. and, you know, support them and, and find out what their needs are because they're going to be very, extremely varied. Mm-hmm. What about, what do you think about mentors versus, and, and sponsors versus the traditional teacher? How could they assist for, the teacher? For, kids? for children, yeah, for students. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the things that's really, really critical is that as we're building computer science education, that we don't build a bigger version of our existing male-dominated system, mm-hmm. right? So um, that is going to mean extra effort to make sure that minorities, girls, and essentially mostly low-income kids who, who lack access to the resources and the devices and things at home, that they get the support they need to be successful. And so that's where mentors can be really critical. And so there's lots of opportunities for adults to um, mentor through after-school programs and summer programs and become a person who is, is helping a young person along this path. But I also find, like, for me personally, the most powerful thing you can do is use your social capital on that kid's behalf. Mm-hmm. Help them get that sponsorship. Yes. Be a sponsor, help them get an internship, help them get an opportunity, give them opportunities to speak or learn or come to a conference. Like I sometimes will call conference organizers and say, look, I have thousands of girls. How many, how many free tickets do you want to give me to this conference? Yeah. Because you don't have any women at your conference. I have women that want to go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's see what we can do. Yeah. (laughs) And they usually say yes. 
So that's where our sponsor is, is part of the team. Yeah. Great. So uh, you've got, as a teacher in computer science, STEM in general, you need to have a team. You've got to be friends with scientists, with engineers. You've got to build a mentorship mentality, I suppose, especially if you're working on, or if you're asking your students to work on projects, project-based learning, and then have sponsors help out um, your students to uh, create opportunities for them. Well, a great place to get those sponsors is from the alumni of your school. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're a high school, you know, who are the alumni that work in the field? If you're a university, that's an even easier lift, right? Because they have alumni offices and teams, but, you know, find an alumni (laughs) that, Mm -hmm. or someone who works at a local company that wants to engage. But I think the key thing is, is you need to make sure to, to keep your, your asks reasonable and accessible because you don't want to burn out your partners. And so, um, I try to make it as easy as possible for people to plug in and do, do things in stages, you know, let them do a little thing first. Let's go out for coffee next. Let's come visit the classroom. And then maybe we're going to like help lead a summer program or something. You know, you want to let people ease into things. It's true. that It's very hard to say no when the question is important and uh, it's asked in a way that, you know, it's a win-win situation. Like, have you had the experience of somebody declining, say, a sponsorship discussion with you for a student? Um, I think in most cases, it's often just um, not the right time. And I Mm. think that many of our... um, organizations they want to help but maybe they're not ready and so my my message to to people from industry that really want to be helpful like think about what your core competency is that could actually be useful right so if you're an organization that has advertising right say you're pandora the uh, music app Mm -hmm. okay so what could you do to to support computer science for all well you could have your roughly 100 engineers go mentor kids. Yeah, that has some impact. Or you could take the advertising platform that you have and the millions of adults that are listening to it, and you could do advertising to parents about how to support their kids. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what is the thing that you have and that you already do that you could help, use to help computer science without disrupting your business and disrupting your workflow? You know, because Absolutely. things are not going to be sustainable if you if you're like, okay, all my engineers are going to dedicate five hours a week. Well, <laughs> that gets costly pretty quick, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, I really encourage companies to think about either like write a check to pay for teachers or to pay for programs, write a check, or um, use something that you already have and you already do that is part of your regular t- um, line of business to support the work. And so if you have devices, you have devices. If you have, you know, platforms, give platforms. It has to be a good fit, right? So Pandora's engineers might be awesome engineers, but might not actually be interested in teaching. So that would not be a good fit. So you've got to think about this. Well, and a really good example would be um, Boeing in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. They're a defense contractor. They can't have kids under 18 running around their Mm -hmm. offices. Mm -hmm. So they built a makerspace at their facility. They open it up to students and schools and they hire teenagers to teach classes there. And so they can't hire those teenagers as high school interns because of their security clearance. So they created this makerspace to enable them to hire these kids as interns. Great. 
you know, so find a solution that is going to work. And so now, you know, it's the sort of flagship makerspace of the city of St. Louis. It's providing a community resource and also doing community engagement that they can't really, you know, you can't take people on tours of a top, top secret facility. So it solves some of those problems. <laughs> That's great. Ruth, I wanted to ask you something that you kind of asked yourself a little bit earlier. It's actually one of the questions that I've got written down here. So let's say that money was not an issue. You've got like a huge budget to use and use it towards promoting computer science say, to students in grades K to 12, what would you do with that money? Well, one, I would, um, if I could do anything, I didn't have the constraints mm-hmm. of, of the- um, No constraints, everybody's on board. <laughs> you rule. Um, I, w- I would make it financially attractive for trained computer scientists to become teachers. Mm-hmm. Because right now you get trained to be a computer scientist you were asking you to sacrifice a lot yeah. to take a K-12 teaching job. So I would make that attractive. So through salaries, right? You would increase salaries to match computer science salaries in the market for teachers. I would make it competitive to, you know, like and attractive. Yeah. I would really like to double down on teachers of color. I want, mm-hmm. like, we need to do an end run on this whole situation, right? We already don't have enough teachers of color. We really don't have enough teachers of color in STEM fields. Yeah. So I would like to, like, put a ton of resources into building a pipeline of teachers of color in computer science because the only way we're going to get to um, to equity in this field is to have role models right there in the classroom with the kids, mm. the kids to be able to see themselves in this field. So I want to just pour a ton of money into the schools of education that produce teachers of color and make sure that they're producing teachers of color that are teaching computer science. Yeah. It's very similar to what the movie Panther did, right? Uh, yeah. With its representation of uh, African-Americans as superheroes, which had not been done before. And there is a lack of such role models as well in other places, including science, engineering, computer science, of course. Well, and it works. It actually really works. Mm, So recently there was a research study that came out that showed that girls ages six and under, when asked to draw a scientist, would draw a woman 75% of the time. But girls over six would draw a woman only 25% of the time. Uh, And many people were interpreting that data as being very disheartening as if we are beating the belief in equity out of them. But I actually think it's something else. I think that what we're seeing is the Doc McStuffins effect. So yep. Doc McStuffins is a TV show for three to five-year-olds in which there is a little girl who pretends to be a doctor with her stuffed animals. Her mother is a doctor and her dad is a stay-at-home dad and it's a black family. I think the fact that we've got like five years of pre-K kids growing up watching a TV show in which the scientist, the mm. doctor, mm. is a black mm. woman is actually changing their perception. So the good news there is we can actually influence perceptions through media pretty quickly. Absolutely. Much quicker than we can change people's biases and beliefs at the adult level. So, yeah, I think that would be a good use for that money. Just make, uh, invest in teachers, really. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to move into rapid fire questions now. Okay. Just uh, get uh, a few... Uh, a few things that actually uh, are a bit, for example, to read uh, the books that you read, any books that you would recommend to not just teachers, but also parents in any field. It doesn't have to be about computer science. Um, it could be about pedagogy. It could be about you know, general literature, fiction, nonfiction, things that uh, really interest you and shape the way that you think. 
Um, believe it or not, Fahrenheit 451. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Which I, I read in high school and then I reread recently, or not that recently, it was probably 15 years ago, but I'm really excited they're making a movie of it again because when they made the previous movie, they just didn't have the technology yeah, to make it look great. real. Got to look into that. If you go back and look at Fahrenheit 451, which was written in the 50s by Ray Bradbury, that book predicted the internet. <laughs> it predicted reality television. It predicted television walls, they called them, automation of policing. And it, it really has some, it predicted social media, predicted Twitter. Mm. So it's really interesting to read that and, and go back and look at what he was projecting for the future and what actually came to be reality. In, in what way did that affect you? Well, it makes me think a lot about sort of the implications of the, the sort of dumbing down of information. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, actually, Fahrenheit 451 predicted fake news, too, <laughs> because in in this story, like your all knowledge has been boiled down to just like a tagline. Right. So Twitter. So clickbait. Yeah. Right. That it's considered elitist to have books and have knowledge. Uh, right. And that that's negative. You think you're better than everyone else. So sort of the playing to the lowest common denominator when it comes to television, like we're now at a place where there's no real difference between television, um, news and entertainment. It's all the same thing. Like news and yeah. entertainment are all wrapped up together. So I think, I think a lot about the like societal changes that are happening because of technology and they're happening very, very fast, much faster than policy and um, norms can keep up with it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just really interesting to look at, you know, what was the warning in 1952 and now here we are. It's very interesting. I find the fake news situation interesting because it, it perhaps it's an outcome of the amounts of information that we receive from our environment every day and that causes uh, numbness really it makes it hard for us to distinguish what is new and what is real and what is not real and uh, we just accept everything the same because of the fatigue that is being constructed and um, I know that's another thing that I think education has got a very important role to play here and that is to give students and uh, you know children as they're growing up the means to be able to distinguish what is true and what is not true. It's usually through a scientific process. Well, to be able to understand, you know, there's media literacy, there's computational literacy, right? Like mm -hmm. understanding mm -hmm. um, and being able to discern what's important and what's not. And also there's this sense of like, rapid sharing. Like I've got to get these things out. I've got to be the first one, yes. the first one to share this. So people really don't dive deep into any of the content if they read it at all. They and the implications are really grave. Like if you think about the consequences of this type of numbness uh, on democracy itself as a citizen, to be able to understand what is going on around you, to make informed decisions. And if you lose that capability, then the whole system in which we are brought up and operate is in danger of just collapsing around us. And but at we, the same we're time, we're not going to even know. You know at the <laughs> same time, we're seeing tremendous opportunity for activism and change enabled with technology. Mm, and mm, mm -hmm. um, I've seen young women that I work with that have launched and scaled up national programs in a matter of a year. And I was like, how did you scale this national program? They're like, well, because I'm in this online group with all these people. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Everything's accelerating. You know, so like <laughs> we're, 
we have a very connected group of young people. And, um, you know, anytime I hear from, um, folks that are, they're like, you know, kids today or young people today, I'm like, I don't know which young people you're hanging out with because the ones I know are spectacular. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I do get that a lot. And when I think about the, the young people that I get to meet and talk to, uh, they're amazing. So I'm very hopeful about the future, actually. I'm very optimistic despite fake news and all that. (laughs) Another question I wanted to ask you was, uh, you did touch a little bit on this earlier when you talked about, uh, you know, the the early days uh, when you were a student and uh, thinking about women like other worlds, for example. Are there any people that come to mind as being very influential in the way that you think, just like books, but in this case, just people and how they they talk perhaps in the media in the books that they write just being around um yeah so um for me personally and i i do like to always talk about the teachers that influenced me you know i had a pretty unhappy math journey in school so when i got to college i was like i'm just going to test out of math and never take a math class. So then my senior year of college, I had to take a science class to finish my science requirements because I was a communications and German major. I'd managed to skirt virtually all STEM. And (laughs) I ended up in um, physiology of nutrition. And I was a senior. So I'm, you know, like at the senior, senioritis. And um, my professor was Janice Lochner at Lewis and Clark College. And she actually is still teaching there. And I walk into the class and I'm ready with my pass-fail slip. You know, I'm going to ask her to sign the slip allowing me to take the class pass-fail. And the first thing she says, I don't allow anyone to take my class (laughs) pass-fail. And pretty rapidly, I, you know, kind of distinguished myself as being one of the lead students in the class. And she asked me to lead some study groups. And she was like, have you ever considered going to medical school? Have you thought about this? You seem to have a mind for this. And I could actually recite for you full you know, the Krebs cycle and a number of things that I learned in that class. And she was the first person to make me think that I had Mm. any ability in that area at all. You can do it. Well, encouragement. Encouragement is the most powerful thing. And one of the things I try to impress upon people, encouragement is free. Like it it costs you nothing Mm -hmm. to give a student some encouragement and it shouldn't be, you know, false. It should be true that you're encouraging them, but you have to understand that oftentimes girls and underrepresented students are not receiving the level of encouragement that status quo, you know, boys are. And that the little bit of encouragement you give to a student who is not part of the status quo can go a long, long way. And it really, you know, it doesn't cost you much. It's one of those triggers that can change somebody's life, right? Especially if you receive that encouragement from somebody that you deeply respect, like your teacher. It makes a huge difference. Well, and if you look at virtually all high-performing people from underrepresented groups will point to a person, yeah. a person in their life that took an interest in them and, and pushed them in the right direction. And so one of the things I've tried to do in my work is to figure out how do I scale that, right? How do I make sure that that experience is happening for the, the kids that need it the most? And, you know, when you look at what happens for a boy, say a boy decides he wants to take computer science as a freshman in high school. There's no social cost for him. Mm -hmm. All his other boys are taking it. You know, he's been playing video games back in middle school. (laughs) Totally natural. Not a social cost, right? He's kind of going with the flow. A girl 
at 14 has to have the presence of mind to be like, I don't care that I'm going to go away from my friend group and the norms that are established by society for me. Yeah. I'm going to go be in this class by myself with all these weird boys. And all my friends are, are doing something else. Right. And so like, yes, of course, there's no one saying, no, girls cannot take computer science in this high school, but there are social factors yeah. that exist that are really powerful. And a sense of a belonging is really important. So finding ways to make that happen for young people, um, and especially for girls to have that sense of community and belonging. I've you know, built a number of national initiatives that do those things for girls as a way to sort of ameliorate this, this uphill or this you know, upstream yeah. path they have to travel. Yeah, we still have a long way to go to fix that situation. We do have a long way to go, yeah. yes. Another question, and we're getting close to the end now, is uh, we often ask uh, our guests, uh, what professional development uh, would you recommend to our listeners? I do know that you've got the CS for All Summit 2018 that is uh, coming in November, uh, sorry, in October of 2018 in Detroit. So I'd like you to tell us a few things about what to expect in that summit and who's invited. Sure. So the CS for All Summit is sort of this moment in time in the year when we, you know, gather the community and um, engage the community in conversations about computer science education. And there's lots of of professional development opportunities and things that happen around the course of the year. The summit is really about driving change. So making commitments. So having organizations come to the table and say, we're going to do this by this time for these students or for these teachers. And it creates a, a publicity moment, right? So we get everybody doing something on the same day and that creates an opportunity for uplift. So last year's CS for All Summit was in St. Louis. Um, we had an amazing day of speakers and announcements. And we talked about lots of critical topics like um, reaching students where they are, issues of equity, um, cybersecurity. This year, um, I anticipate we're going to have bigger and better speakers, so I cannot tell you yet who they are. Mm -hmm. We're specifically going to Detroit because we're interested in going to the places that, you know, that are not Silicon Valley, like places that people don't necessarily think of. Because the reality is most jobs in technology are not in technology companies. Mm -hmm. they're really in everything. And, um, you know, if you look at the automotive industry and what is the future of the automotive industry, technology is at the heart of that and computing is at the heart of that. And so, um, we're going to Detroit because we want to make sure that when that happens, that it's the students of Detroit that have the opportunity to fill those roles and create that innovation. So, we're going to be moving the summit around the nation for that reason. So what are some of the things that a visitor should expect at summit? Like, would there be talks about progress in computer science education, about girls in CS, workshops, training? What should people expect? So there will be a plenary day, which um, will be live streamed and, you know, your audience and anyone else can watch mm-hmm. live in real time. Oh, you okay. We'll be broadcasted. Yeah. It will be broadcasted um, around the world. And then we also are going to have some um, partner satellite workshops. We're going to do some work with informal education organizations, as well as do some work with school districts, in particular, the Detroit public schools and other schools around Michigan. That makes a lot of sense. And then we're also working with a number of 
community organizations that are kind of working at the policy and state level, like trying to figure out how to, how do we actually make this work? Because, you know, the United States might as well be 50 countries. We are as different as we are alike in um, all these different implementations of, of the education system. So we're doing some of that. Great. So we'll be inviting um, stakeholders that are making commitments. So if you want to make a commitment to CS for All, we're going to actually open that up on May 1st and people can submit commitments. And then we actually build the agenda from the commitments announced by the community. And they don't have to be huge. You know, some of my favorite commitments are small efforts like Daddy Daughter Code Nights, which is a program in North Carolina. Or they could be a big effort to invest a whole bunch of money. But I definitely maintain that no effort is too small to be of value to computer science for all. Great. Thanks for that. I should also mention that the videos from the 2017 uh, summit are all available on the cs4all.org website. So you can watch. There's a lot of interesting things there. I can alternative pathways to computer science success, for example, uh, principles and so on. Really nice stuff there. I'm going to check some of those videos later today. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Ruth. Um, can people get in touch with you and uh, have a chat with you perhaps or communicate via email? Or what are the means of communication that you prefer? Sure. So um, my email is Ruth, R-U-T-H-E, at csforall.org. Mm-hmm. You can also find me on Twitter at R-U-T-H-E-F. And um, you can also just Google Ruth and the word girl and you'll find me. Great. I'm even on Wikipedia now. You're on Wikipedia. <laughs> That's great. Do you maintain your Wikipedia page? No, you can't. You're not allowed to do your own Wikipedia. So somebody else is doing it for you. Yeah, that's what I thought. For you. Yeah. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, I was checking out your Twitter feed, and it's like you're really busy on Twitter. There's a lot of good stuff that you tweet, uh, original stuff, uh, interesting things that you retweet. So it's another really good source of information on on your movement and CS for all. So really appreciate your time, Ruth. Uh, Thank you very much. It's been a really eye-opening conversation for me. And uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, The summit looks like going to be a great experience and a great success for anybody who is there. I'm not going to be able to be there, unfortunately, I'd like. But maybe next year I do plan to come to the U.S., and uh, if things align properly, I'd like to be able to join. Well, I've got my uh, I've got my, um, my next trip to uh, your part of the world scheduled for November and December. So that's um, a great. Oh, oh, we should get in touch then. Which which part of Australia are you visiting? Well, I'm going to Fiji, but I'll um, you know swing through Australia on my way. So. Uh, please do. Just uh, yeah, I'll keep an eye uh, around. Um, Say October, I'm going to send you a message. Yeah, it'll actually and be see where in the world you are. November, November sixteenth on, I think, is when I'm heading that way. So, um, I, I'll be here. I would love to come talk to people about computer science in Australia. I can connect you to people. <laughs> There's a lot of people here that uh, do this sort of work, and uh, we do have. I'm building a little network here, so that I'll be able to connect you to a lot of interesting people. Fantastic. Well, so nice talking to you. Thank you, and um, looking forward to the recording. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Ruth are available on our website, txplot.com forward slash p forward slash stemiverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a gold mine of information in the notes. This Stemiverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. 
Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at txplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.